Good afternoon. Welcome to the 23rd episode of Genomics Gupshup. Uh, genomics Gupshup is created to create awareness among, about genomics among the average person, uh, clinicians and others who are interested in this great field of genomics. So today we have uh, Dr. G.R. Chandak who has been a pioneer in this space. He's uh, not just an MD but he's also a PhD and has been doing a lot of research uh, in, in the space of genetics and genomics. If you look at his scholar profile, you can keep on reading and it will not end. <laughs> so uh, he's currently the chief scientist uh, and group leader at the very established and prestigious uh, CCMB, that's the Center for Cellular and Molecular Biology. Welcome to Genomics Kapshir Dr. Chatham. Thank you very much. So I know that it's difficult to go through your entire uh, <laughs> great uh, portfolio of things that you have done. But I want to start at the beginning. Yeah. And, and I think we have one thing in common, which is that we are both from from uh, from Bikaner. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, do you think that you know being from Bikaner gave you something of an extra treat or extra something that has helped you in all your uh, <coughs> you know, long list of achievements? Well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I would say because I, I never thought about it. <clears throat> So probably, uh, I can, I have very vivid memories of Bikaner, you know, I mean, I, I was born there, but then I never stayed long enough. My, I was rather brought to Calcutta by my parents and then all my education has been there. But yes, we have been to Bikaner on a regular basis as it would be during summer vacations or any functions and all that. So, I only have, you know, very happy memories of the place and uh, interacting with people. I think that the kind of, you know, the collectiveness or, you know, the interaction with family members, staying together, sharing their sorrows and joys, that was something which probably helped me develop good relationship, have, you know, large number of collaborators that I'm really very proud of. And uh, second, I think that, you know, the, the, the sort of idea of doing something different, I probably get from my, my, my father and from my uncle. They both, as, as during that time, had pretty difficult times, but I mean, both in financial terms and others, but I think they took up the challenge and kept on doing, you know, various things till we are really, you know, very stable. So I I would I wouldn't be able to say that well Bikaner was the one which uh, shaped everything, but yes in hindsight I think that uh, uh, you know interacting with lots of people friends family members uh, that makes it a little bit easy to get on with people. So I mean, mostly I mean I was I start some of my presentation saying I'm a Marwadi and that's it. I think people smile. <laughs> right? I think because it's not just the you know not just genetics, but it's also like you mentioned yes. the community in the sense of you know yes. um, helping each other out and being oh, part yes. of the, yes, yes, yes. So so that is what I will to bring up a little bit. But uh, you know, and I remember Bikaner many many years ago. Mm -hmm. and I remember how did you know how, how did you come out and, and actually do become a doctor and then a visiting. Yeah. Not an easy thing, at easy. least at that point of time. I don't yeah. remember there were that many people who studied that much. Right? So, how did you, who inspired you to do that? And 
so uh, as you rightly said that you know during that time education was less of a priority it was rather you know business and like uh, marwaris are known for their business skills and i think world over i guess so i but uh, i would say that my I, i think probably my father my uncle probably because they had gone through such hardship in the absence of a formal education so both of them were determined that none of their children will remain uneducated and then it was those time when you know kids used to listen to the parents okay <laughs> so <laughs> my father had ambition that you know he would have a doctor a, a, a sort of a chartered accountant and a, a management kind of a person in his so my we are three brothers and so my fate was sort of decided by my father and uh, i must say i was fortunate to you know uh, sort of have been having been groomed like that also and uh, i got very good teachers i would say biology maths teachers but those were you know like say 78 80 when i passed 10th and 12th exam it was in calcutta Uh, but we had very good biology and maths teachers but as i said that my fate was already sealed and uh, so it was nothing that i made a choice but i must say that i i really wanted to become a doctor and uh, um, it was it was a very nice experience during my mbbs mb and subsequently also the fact that i am able to use my medical knowledge to do some of these uh, so then research. from being a doctor you became a double doctor <laughs> yeah. You did a PhD also. Yeah, I did a PhD. Actually, I mean, uh, I must say that um, this is something very, I mean, peculiar. You know, when I came to CCMB, I was an MD in biochemistry, and when I came here, I came here for a postdoc interview. You know, uh, but then I was, I was told initially that well, your MD is equivalent to MSc, and your MBBS is equivalent to BSc. I was first yes I was first considered not fit to appear for that interview but then some of the directors thought that this is one of the few doctors who is coming over let's try to catch him so so I joined as a postdoc and then over a period of time I there are two things which led me to do a phd first of all I was never trained you know in any molecular biology Uh, at that time there was hardly any genetics taught let aside any technical thing of course i had a privilege of working with uh, professor lakotia dr raman in bhu so i had some preliminary experience but i realized that unless i do things on my own it will be extremely difficult and to be honest i didn't have i mean at that time serious plans to continue on research when i came to ccmb my idea was to spend 2 3 years have good experience and then go back you know and start providing this kind of services because at that time there weren't many places but then uh, when i came then i really got you know engrossed also ccmb also helped because the atmosphere was so good and you know infectious i would say people would talk to each other no hierarchy all the systems open so then i thought that if i do a phd that means that will be something which i will be owning up also so i decided to get on to a phd and again i mean director ccmb and others were very supportive at that time so yeah i 
you can call as a double double <laughs> yeah. So, um, so after that, you've been involved in many different areas, right? I mean, I saw that you know you you go you've done in diabetes in uh, many other yes. many different areas. So, which has been your most um, you know? I know it's hard to say that when yeah. you've done multiple things. But how has your, uh, you know, how did you get interested in so many different research areas yeah. and uh, what has been the most exciting for you? So I, I mean, uh, as a physician, you know, I have always been excited to give something back to the society. So although I have done, you know, I feel that there are many interesting things that I have been able to do. But still my first love remains molecular diagnostics, genetic counseling, prenatal diagnosis because, because of the fact that you know this, this helps us contribute to the society. And I think that any research, anything that you do, in my opinion it should find some application somewhere. If it is agriculture you know that it is a very large implication. Not that I am saying that basic research is not important, that's extremely important because un unless we understand the basics, we really can't move forward or so. But that one thing still remains my passion and actually if I, if I recollect my 25-30 years, I came here in 94, so close to three decades journey. I 94, in 94 I came to CCMB and then right from the first day actually, uh, Dr. Lalji Singh was my mentor at that time and right from first day we struck note on one thing that we have to develop a state of the art diagnostics facility, everything and he was over ambitious, much more ambitious than me. He would always say that well there are 6000 genetic disorders, we should develop facility for each and everyone and I used to just think that oh this man is talking about 6,000, we are not able to do for 10, 15 because of technological limitations. But see now, it's possible. It's possible to discover new diseases actually. So, just in three decades time, this whole thing has come that way. But I, I would say that it was very nice because I could develop this facility at uh, CDFD. I was one of the founder faculties of CDFD and it's always happy to see that, you know, really gone very well. Then at CCMB also we do in our own way also. So I'm, I'm very much you know excited about that. The other thing is which was my as research my first love you know which was like uh, looking at chronic pancreatitis. I worked on that for almost 15 years and I learned a lot from there. I must say that that whole journey along with Dr. Nageshwar Reddy and Dr. G. V. Rao from Asian Institute of Gastroenterology that has shaped my career to you know what I have been able to do and in just one or two lines to say that two things which we identified particularly was that the genetic basis of Indian diseases are different than Europeans and second thing was that genetics, genetics is not the boon or the bane of all the diseases. That led me to, you know, complex diseases like diabetes and many other diseases where we realized that other than genetics, it's your environment or lifestyle or nutrition that actually shapes the, the clinical picture that you will finally have. So 
I'm really very thankful to you know have chosen these two areas at the initial stage of my career. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that we keep telling people, right? You're not doing doing understanding your genetics to say it's good or bad. It's yep. more to be able to say how do you optimize, or yes. how do you yes. how do you understand the, all the other risk factors that are there. But in that, uh, you know, you mentioned pancreatitis. I saw one. There was a Hindu article. On, yes. Uh, yeah. You know why do Indians get more? You know, there's a difference. So you, you had mentioned of some of the gene names. Uh, yes. In Pink one. Pink one, and, and you said that you know, Indians have more of a higher frequency. For an average person, what does that mean? Like, does it mean that um, we are more likely to get pancreatitis, or you know, what? Yeah. You know, maybe you can explain to. <laughs> so this actually, this was you know the initial years when we so we discovered this. Uh, we discovered that one of the genes, catenic uh, trypsinogen, present in Europeans was not, uh, you know, a risk factor in Indians and we discovered this particular gene or so. So, what we also found that this gene is, so, you know, every gene has a risk variant and a normal variant. So, the risk variant was present in about 30 to 35 percent of our population compared to about 8 percent to 12 percent in the Europeans. And at that time, you know, the disease was largely considered as a few genes would be causing the disease. So, because this cationic trypsinogen in Europeans was causing the majority of the, the, you know, disease. And we had found Spink1 which was, you know, having a very different genetic structure. So, we hypothesized at that time. And, and again, you know, like going by the, the, because these are complex diseases, which means that the risk runs in the population itself. It's because of some additional factors that one develops the disease, like it is for diabetes or other. So, so the bottom line is that if a particular risk variant is present in a higher proportion in a population, that means that the disease is more likely to be highly prevalent. And uh, that is what was the hypothesis at that time. And I still remember that, you know, when that was announced, um, I think it was, uh, I'm forgetting the name, but it was, Som uh, Shekharan, I think, uh, he was the science journalist in that and he asked me that, so can you tell people that if you have spink one, then what is the chance of developing pancreatitis? And that question I have been facing since then actually. So I used to say that, well, these are early years or so and uh, actually we were proven true because today there are some 15, 16 genes which are known to be associated with pancreatitis. But that technology allows us to investigate that. Of course, I mean, uh, as I said that these all diseases are also dependent on lifestyle because just having the risk variant doesn't make you develop pancreatitis. Yeah. Same, same with obesity. Many other Many other diabetes, cardiovascular diseases also. So one of the things that I find fascinating is how people come up with these gene names. Right. Right. I mean... How do you figure out like, you know, why is something called BRCA, why is something called SPINK, why is something called the same? So like you probably deal with this on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Yeah. Is there some method to this madness of like, you know, or is it just depends on, you know, um, Dr. Uh, Chandak has, um, you know, found this out so he'll name it, you know. <laughs> Interesting question. Uh, 
I mean, as far as my my knowledge goes, that uh, people usually do. I mean, if a gene name is usually decided by, uh, so a gene name is yeah. I mean, either decided by the protein. Again, you would say then how the protein name is decided. But as far as I understand, that any of the nomenclatures, they essentially supposed to give an idea about the structure or the function. Of you know that particular gene or the protein, like say when I say spink one, without going into detail, but it stands for the serine protein, serine threonine protein kinase. So the moment you see this name, you know that well it's a kinase, and there are these two amino acid residues. Same thing holds for say hemophilia A gene. I mean it's very simple. That that means that this is the gene which leads to hemophilia. So there are various ways. I think it has come either say the deficiency causes a disease, or that it cause it leads to a particular function. I, I think that the the names after scientists. I think they are they are more common in some of the species. You know, right. like any infectious organism, you find and you put those kind of. But as far as I remember, gene names are usually mostly, mostly yeah protein okay. based, and then. To for a specific function, of course. I mean, now we have so so. You might be you must be aware that when there is nothing, then they would just say ORF, you know, open reading frames. And then as the function would get more and more correct, now we have all long non-coding RNA to whatever you know. So many are there, but yeah, I mean these these all are intended with the purpose that I mean, looking at the name itself, some information is. Gotten about the function or the disease that it might cause. One of your other areas of research is methylation. Right. Yeah. And uh, I remember having this conversation with some people about methylation, but for most people, they don't understand, right? right. Like, what is methylation? Right? What does it really mean? Uh, so, you know, when you are studying methylation, yeah. what are you, you know, right. what do you study in that? Like, and and can you do it with? Um, you know, how do you actually use genomics or genetics to study it? Right. I mean, it's a, I will try to simplify it, you know, I mean, although this is a very age-old mechanism. So, if I have to say methylation, then it's, it's just a simple reaction, you know, where methyl group is added to a substrate and the product which is methylated, essentially. But this methylation has been one of the most important regulatory reactions. I mean, we know that you know stone methylation or say any methylation at a particular you know CPG island, which is sort of present in the promoter region, it's a regulatory region. So methylation essentially is a phenomenon by which the gene function is regulated. That's the simplest way that I can say. And uh, how do we contrast it with a particular uh, structural change, which we usually call as a mutation in a gene? is that a, a, a structural change will usually lead to a replacement of amino acid like it happened in sickle cell anemia. In the protein there is a glutamic acid but because of some mutation, you know, lysine it becomes. So the whole property of the protein changes. So similarly many other changes can happen because of this. Somewhere, sometimes because of a structural change the protein may be truncated. It may become small, like it happens in hemophilia. So there is function of the protein is lost. It becomes loses. It remains only ten percent active or something. Whereas methylation, in contrast, if 
if suppose if we say methylation that means it will influence the uh, rna level and then subsequently the protein level that's the kind of uh, relationship that we usually thought i'm not going to make it very complicated but suffice it to say that if there is a methylation at a particular regulatory region of a gene then it is likely to influence its levels which means that if i needed 50% level or say 50 mg of a protein to do certain function i'm now going to have 10 mg and all that so that means it's likely to cause the problem what is equally important is that the structure of a gene you can't change you know it's what you are born with and that's what makes you what you are but then methylation is something which is dynamic it is dependent on various factors but for the sake of simplicity for you know <laughs> larger audience it can be influenced by as simple as your diet or as simple as any kind of vitamin supplement that you take say for example if yeah. i talk about b12 yeah that's a so it's a and many of the people wouldn't think that b12 is important but but it's a it's a kind of a b complex group of proteins and it has attained big importance in last few years so with the if you take b12 or say any other dietary changes then it is likely to influence the methylation of certain genes and which means that it will influence the protein levels of those genes and the fact that the genetic structure cannot be altered so easily but the the function of a protein due to methylation can be altered so easily that's why there is a lot of excitement and this area of this methylation it, it's one of the components of uh, you know epigenetics which has come up so genetics means your your gene sequence your genetic structure and any aberration leading to a either a clinical or an aberrant phenotype whereas epigenetics means that something which is not genetic above genetics which so a change which can occur without any change in the sequence of dna is what we would call as epigenetic changes and people might have heard i'm just mentioning these terms like mirnas and you know long non coding rnas these are also sort of uh, uh, epigenetic modifications which can happen so in bottom in 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 nutshell uh, while genetics determines what you are but probably epigenetics determines that how your life course you know and how your clinical uh, profile or any kind of disease may occur so essentially i think you know, when you mentioned initially it, it's neither a, a bone or a brain yes i think it's because of all the environment exactly. and i think the greatest thing has been that now you can actually measure these levels as yes. well and i think one of the areas that the b12 thing there are yeah. i think methylated versions of the uh, you know the b12 yes i think supplements also that now i think yes. are being sold in yeah <laughs> so i think it's it's fascinating how how much information we've been able to gather over the last you know so many years yes and the people should realize that you know, all of this information is a guide it's not like it's not a destiny right yes. and i think that's one of the biggest uh, you know things that we want to get people to understand that anything is there so that you know it can help you to get to a better state without without being uh, compromised in terms of your quality of life <coughs> yes so um 
you are also working on gene nutrient interaction. So, uh, can you tell us like a little bit more about how uh, you know how this research helps the average person? I think we mentioned a little bit about uh, B12, but is is there are there other areas of uh, you know nutrients and, and genes that we that will have a huge impact on the yes. approach. Yeah. So, I mean, um, this this also is something I would say which, you know, I, I learned from my early career and uh, I would say more than success, the failures, you know, because when we started working on diabetes, we, you know, that Indians developed diabetes at least 10 years earlier than Europeans. And then, uh, Europeans develop diabetes when they are obese. Obesity is considered to be important factor. But you know that Indians are not obese to say the least. But then they have a very different kind of obesity. They are you know centrally obese. So they have lots of fat around the paunch and all. And I'm sure the audience knows that you know people with a paunch around have you know more more trouble or so. So when so it's like. Uh, we are usually taught that, you know, it's your genes which decide the way you look, the way you walk, the way you behave, the way your, you know, protein function is there. So, so when we go like that, that means that this genetic constitution determines everything. But as I elaborated earlier also that it's not so. And uh, we have always been excited because, I mean, I in particular... Being from a medical background, uh, I, I, I would say reasonably understand the clinical heterogeneity, you know. So, the work on calcific pancreatitis also started from there and then we did find that there are different genes which are causing the disease. So same thing we went with diabetes also. We thought, well, early onset, lack of obesity, Indians are more insulin resistant, there must be something genetic. And then over almost several years, we kept on working and we couldn't identify a novel gene for diabetes in Indians. Of course, we found very different mechanisms. And again, I'll not go into the details, but from one of the studies which we did, and there was a gene which was called FTO, which was identified in Europeans, obesity, obesity gene. That's where our, my first... Uh, you know, movement towards this epigenetics or nutrition started because what we found that FTO would work through obesity to develop diabetes in the Europeans. But for us, it was an independent risk factor for diabetes. So it wouldn't really work through obesity. And that is where we thought that, well, there could be a different way that this FTO might be regulated. And that's when we started moving towards this nutrients and other things also. Now it was, I mean, on a, on a different perspective, one question which I started having about 10 years back was that, okay, even if you find that somebody has got a risk factor, say uh, some diabetes risk genes are there, but what do I do to them? I cannot change the genetic constitution of the individual. And by the time we, we find out, the individual is already in 20s or 30s. So what do you finally do? So essentially, the, the, the whole thing goes back to your lifestyle modification, your walking, your nutrition and other things. So that was really a big dilemma about 10-12 years back. 
and it it was like you know uh, leading on a road which is already closed you even if you find hundreds of genes also you have nothing to you know hand over to the person who is at a risk so what am i doing then i ask myself the question that i am only labeling an individual at a genetic level if there is a family which has got five diabetics then they know that they are going to the sixth one is highly likely to develop diabetes what am i doing by doing genetics to that person except that we motivate them further for lifestyle and other things and that is where i came in contact with uh, people who work on programming you know uh, dr yagnik amongst them the most important person my collaborator and i worked with dr kumaran dr krishnaveni and many others actually so what i learned from there is that so since you asked about this where the nutrition can come in what i learned that it is again you know not only your genetics but then your environment which can be as early as the intrauterine environment which means that the mother's nutrition which determines the you know the nutrition around the baby for the first 9 months in the womb that determines many of the things and uh, again to cut a long story short it's very clear that the mothers who are diabetic during the pregnancy this is an age old uh, observation that the mothers who are diabetic or have high glucose levels during pregnancy their kids are born big because because glucose acts as a nutrition for them all the time and these kids once they are born they are at a very high risk of developing diabetes in future so this was one of the earlier observations which said that well mother's nutrition has programmed the fetus to develop diabetes in future and this field is called earlier it was called fetal programming now it is called developmental origins of health and disease the, because this has not only led to diabetes or others it's also influencing many other cognition and all that so this is what we have been looking at and we have used you know both genetics huge amount of genetics data i work with some 5 6 cohorts each of which have about 500 600 mother child and father pairs trios and then their data at you know every 5 years 6 years all these this data have this is a full longitudinal cohort of you know two decades or so and uh, currently all these kids are at about 20 to 25 years of age so i'm really thankful to these collaborators you know even international collaborators dr caroline fall in particular and many others so now our understanding is just to summarize that while it's important that your genetic constitution has to be correct but that is mostly important for you know rare diseases which means if i have a mutation i may develop sickle cell i may develop beta thalassemia and others but what is equally important is the number of other kinds of variants which then in interaction with early life environment like i said mother's nutrition or even at a later point of time also with your diet your nutrition and lifestyle that can finally decide the the, the development of diabetes or say cognition problems or Absolutely. Sorry for this long answer. No, that's that's uh, you know precisely. Yes. I think that's that's the area that yeah. we do a lot of. Uh, we have been. I think one of the biggest thing is telling people that the reason we are doing this is not to 
Mm. Like you said, it's not a destiny. Yes. It's more about helping and guiding them. Yeah. For instance, genetically, I'm, um, you know, very prone to diabetes. Right. I have a family history also. Yes. But you know, I, you know, you manage the environment and your your lifestyle. And lifestyle. Yes. yes. And my, you know, today my HDA1C is 4.9. So it is. Wow. Okay. So I think I've been able to keep that in, sure. you know, in check. And I think that's what we want to tell people that. Yes, it, it's true that you know you have a slightly different uh, you know, genetic makeup, but right. it means you might have to try a little bit harder in harder. some cases. But, Absolutely. But yes. you can do it. Yes, yes. And, yes. Uh, you know, the same thing with many others. I think I had, I discovered B12 deficiency the hard way. Uh -huh. um, you had so, trouble with that. No, so I had a, I think a doctor almost was going to operate on me, thinking I had carpal tunnel syndrome, saying that you know you work so hard on your. Uh, um, wrist and all that. Wrist and you're working all the time and therefore you know, we need to operate you. Luckily, they, I went to another doctor and he basically told me that, you know, get a B12 test done. And right. That's when I found out. There were many other ones. More than, you know. So I think and later on when I did the genome patri, I found that it showed over there that I had a gene. Yeah, that I had the oh, I risk over there. Uh, okay. uh, so if I would have done it already, I would have known. But sure. it's okay. So... <laughs> <laughs> So that is uh, one thing that, that we find. Sure, sure. So I know you have many other research interests. Any other thing that, that you find uh, exciting or you're working on right now? I read about a, a very large cohort that you are uh, working on right now, some 53 lakhs, something. No, I mean, this is a... So I, so, uh, I think my journey is now pretty clear that, you know, I started from single gene disorders worked on diseases which had both genetic and possible environmental component in pancreatitis that then moved on to common diseases like diabetes and then tried to understand the time point at which the risk develops so that we can intervene at that point of time and have tried to understand the molecular mechanisms of you know that how early life exposures influence epigenetic mechanisms so that we can guide any individual right at birth or just after birth because early intervention is always you know the, the sort of idea so from from while that continues as a as a big you know sort of part of my uh, my lab work or everyday work i have i have now taken advantage of my earlier experience with these monogenic disorders so now I work on two particular disorders. One of them is uh, hemoglobinopathies and other is musculopathies. So, uh, I long back, you know, it was I think in 1999-2000, I worked on sickle cell anemia because uh, in, in, in some tribal populations of Wysak, I think it was Hakipiki, no, not Hakipiki, I forget, some Rallies, Rallies, yeah, Rallies. They had sickle cell anemia and I was somehow referred by University of uh, uh, Andhra University and what we found that was a small study but what we found that the Indians had a very mild sickle cell phenotype you know you know that Africans have very severe phenotype and they die early and have lots of complications so to, to just to put it in nutshell that we at that time we were the first ones to find out that well uh, Sort of, I wouldn't say Indians because that was the Andhra study. We found that sickle cell patients there had high fetal hemoglobin level, and that was because of a particular genetic variant. I mean, we looked at many variants, so it was a haplotype, Arab Indian haplotype. 
and then I worked for two three years on that, but then I was consumed with this pancreatitis, diabetes, and all that. But I I didn't forget that when this all thing was going on, I started working on sickle cell anemia again, and actually CSIR came up with a CSIR mission mode mission mission mode project on sickle cell anemia, and I was privileged that they sort of you know gave me the opportunity to lead this. So just in nutshell, I will tell you because this is something important if you want to cover a disease which is prevalent in a population, you know. So usually when we talk about genetic testing and other things, we are waiting for something to happen. When it happens, then we test and then we go back and try to prevent the disease. But for diseases which are reasonably prevalent, like say sickle cell, it's not that common a disease, but then in some areas, in some areas I mean six to seven states actually, not I mean some areas, it's big. Like Maharashtra, yeah, Maharashtra, then Odisha, then uh, uh, Gujarat, then you know um, Madhya Pradesh. All these six, seven states, that whole central belt, sickle cell anemia. You know that the the carrier frequency is about ten percent, and disease frequency is point four percent. Okay, so what we thought at that time, I'm again my close friend and colleague, Dr. Patra in. Chhattisgarh and Dr. Deepti Jain in Maharashtra. So we started to work together, and it's a, it's a big program, you know. But I won't go into much details. What we did was that we decided on a population screening program. So instead of Chhattisgarh and Maharashtra, and then in Madhya Pradesh, we started screening for school-going children, and then in hospitals, the newborn screening, and all that. So we have done close to thirty thirty-five lakhs of children screening. And also several thousands of you know patients, their families, and all. It's the sixth year that we are running in them. So what we have been able to achieve is that we realize that there is no point of care testing at that point of time. Whatever is there is all available from abroad, and that would cost about two hundred rupees per test. And then we realize that uh, you know if you want to do a genetic test, then you have to still do several things. So. What we developed is small PCR-based approach where you just take a small drop of blood sample and you can do the whole genetic testing and that's very cheap as well. You're doing this for the child or you do this for the parents? Like so is it done more as a carrier screening or? So so our approach is I mean till now we were mostly going to school children because that can be, because it's it's not possible to do on a you know a complete population base unless you have. state support or center support which is what now we are going to do we are in touch with icmr and others now we we started from there but once suppose a child is identified as a carrier then we go to the family so we have uh, i think some 6 or 6500 families data pedigree charts and everything so we then counsel them there are different kinds of counseling that is done then we offer them prenatal diagnosis All free of cost under this CSIR sickle cell anemia mission. So overall, at the end of this, almost at the fag end of this project, what we have been able to do is have a comprehensive screening plan. That how do you approach, you know, a, a a sort of a village or a district or something? How do you get to a child? How do you screen? What do you do once a child is positive? How the treatment is taken care of? How genetic counselling is done? that sort of a plan we have done implemented in madhya pradesh also and we are quite confident about that 
And second is that we also did quite a bit of research along with my colleagues from other CSR labs, looked at this, as I was saying about hydroxyurea, you know, hydroxyurea uh, registration as a drug for use in sickle cell anemia. And we also tried to investigate the new drugs which can come up uh, from the herbal background or any other chemical modified entities. And then also to look at a, a final treatment for sickle cell anemia. I mean, you know that this is only because of one single mutation all over the world. So using genome editing, using CRISPR-Cas to basically uh, correct that and uh, reinfuse the modified cells, that sort of thing. And I'm happy to say that we are on a good track on that. And uh, um, uh, hopefully we will have, you know, something, but that's a uh, longish procedure to go. But regarding this screening and all, I'm, I'm extremely happy and proud to say that this program has been to, you know, great satisfaction for me because we have identified children and it has an impact uh, also. I'll quickly talk about second one, which is musculopathy. So we have worked on Duchenne muscular dystrophy and spinal muscular atrophy. Uh, there is an organization called Indian Association of Muscular Dystrophy. It's actually Solan based. Through that and their chapters, I have interacted with large number of muscular dystrophy patients and all. Again, this is a disease where there is a big social stigma also because this disease passes through the females and affects the males. So we have worked on various aspects, you know, lots social, of social aspects. Oh, lots of social aspects. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I would have shared many interesting stories where, you know, a lady came for getting the carrier status determined and getting a prenatal diagnosis done, completely hiding it from her, her, you know, pay, her husband's family. And one time the husband's family, you know, literally uh, searching for the lady came to CCMB and we had a tough time. We had to hide the lady inside the toilet and <laughs> just say that there's nobody we don't even know and stuff like that. So anyway, that was on a lighter, lighter, but obviously very, very serious, you know, kind of situation for many of the diseases where this happens. So I've been working with these people and our motto has been that, you know, again, this is a disease where there is no treatment no definitive treatment. So uh, there are research groups which are working on this. I'm not involved in that. But my motto there has been that it's it's a disease which can be prevented. While you're developing the cure, why not look at preventing the disease? So we are trying to do, we are trying to look at the, the families where there is a disease and then go back to the females, get their carrier status known. And then you know, prospectively go and keep a track on these women that where, you know, whenever they are planning for a pregnancy or they become pregnant, then... So it's like rather than bringing those women to the, uh, you know, the, the, the doctor or to the clinic, it's we who go to the, to, the, to the family, keep a tab on them, that what's the plan. So that has been also, you know, quite helpful and I'm... I, I recently actually, uh, Honorable Prime Minister also had visited IMD and he actually put it in monkey bath also that muscular dystrophy is such a disease. So following that there is quite a bit of, you know, awareness and excitement about this. So I was also asked by these monkey bath people that what is the disease we don't know. 
so i was very happy that you know these efforts it's a long term efforts i think uh, somewhere these diseases which are you know sort of i call them as commonly occurring rare disease because now rare disease means people think that it's rare actually it's not yeah, it's not it's rare. not rare i mean if you talk about 0.4% sickle cell which means you are talking about 4 per 1000 and considering our 1.6 billion population how many are we talking muscular dystrophy is you know something like 3 per 10000 or so but that's males carriers will be even more high so these are some of the diseases i think where a prevention strategy can be there till we get into the treatment i think so, so that people need to be more aware aware also yeah i mean i completely agree i mean that's where i think it's not possible for you know one individual or a couple of individuals to do yes, i feel yes, yes the government has to come or some sort of a i think that a, i i personally feel that some sort of a public corporate partnership you know should be coming up maybe corporates also need to get into some of these you know social aspects because the bulk is so much that uh, i mean it's it's massive hope that at some point of time we will be able to knock and get something i think done. it's slowly starting to yes, happen a little I agree, bit because I agree. even when you look at like things like your uh, screening for cancer and others also oh, yes. i think now corporates as well as uh, insurance and others are also at least yes. waking up to the fact that yes, you know, these are things absolutely. that so yeah. these are easier things to do i think and, and i think the nidan kendras and others that have been that's coming from dvth yes. yeah Those i think that's a, that's a very good effort. Right. I know that we can. I think we can stop. We say we can continue to yeah. talk, but I know that you, you know, we have come close to an hour. So, sure. yeah. um, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about? I will move to the rapid fire. No, I, I think that uh, it's a very exciting time. You know, I feel um, looking back at when I moved in this field. Since then. a lot of pluses you know first of all i think first and foremost is that the technology has become so powerful i would say that i mean today data generation is not a problem you know data analysis is a problem you have mounds and mounds of data i mean since you are also into this and we are also doing a next generation based sequencing and you are preparing mounds of you know variants of unknown significance so i think that while this is important it needs probably a consortium or a collaborative approach that clinicians and data analysts then you know technical team they take up this as a challenge and i'm sure that india is a, is a huge place and it's a place of you know golden opportunities genetic diversity ethnic diversity disease diversity i think that a, a sort of an effort is required where the motive should be to help the society the patients and uh, i think india has a huge potential in that regard second is i think that i there's huge interest amongst the clinicians also i mean i remember that when i i came 30 years back over here i i was i was said as the crazy person you know and people used to joke that his practice nahi chalta hoga that's why he has come to this field Otherwise, who will come at the three thousand five hundred salary at the age of thirty-five years and spend time and all that? Actually, I was <laughs> I was an outcast in my family also <laughs> for quite some time because 
you know marwadis are business people then a doctor marwadi doctor means should be running you know in riches so but anyway but but it's it's really very interesting now you know now there are opportunities available now there are medical genetics courses clinical genetics courses funding agencies have come forward there i we ourselves run a training program of 2 weeks for medical student so i think opportunities have become huge particularly i would say for the medical community the awareness and one more thing is i i feel that you know clinicians have become a little more humble humble in the sense that they now probably think of talking to you know other, other stream yes. i would say that realizing their lacune also i mean it's important that all of us realize what we don't know rather than trying to acquire all the time everything it's important that just cross that you know one line sort of lakshman rekha and go across and find that so that's something which is i think very very you know uh, important uh, which has happened and lastly i think that uh, society has also become very aware i mean these are the three important pillars and i think society also is now very aware of course i mean many times they ask all kind of uh, other kind of questions but i think but i think that the the people on the other side of the table have to be able to satisfy them so i'm saying that people like counselors or clinicians or the other people that's how you know it has to be done and last but not the least is that the research part of it i think uh, i would say that that's the hub kind of you know a basic research with some inclination and then all these things as i spoke is what uh, so i only tell that you know for the common man uh, whichever way you can either be aware or get into clinics or biology or anything very very exciting time so uh, I, i think yes, that's no what more medical students <laughs> should get in i agree yes yes no i mean i was telling you that there, there was a bunch of 20 medical students and you won't believe i mean even after their course was finished yesterday they spent almost an hour with me five of the students three were from usmania and two from my own old medical college arjikor and the kind of questions they were asking i was i was very happy i said even one of you come into this i'll be very very happy i think it's 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 exciting time for do you think we should make some changes in courses for medical students and also maybe co changes in courses for people who are doing master in biotech and others so that they also understand yeah. you know how medicine works yeah. more and vice versa so i think you know changing courses and other thing is a is a little difficult job and i because <coughs> sorry because you know the uh, the primary objective of a medicine guy is to you know treat and in india we don't have too many doctors you know so every field that you know there is a problem there is a lacuna there is a deficiency of doctors and same holds true for the other side also you know while many people graduate and post graduate but most of them actually go abroad because there aren't much opportunities over here Uh, not i wouldn't say opportunities but the right opportunity people don't get so i am of the opinion that both these sides should be with their curriculum but there should be some kind of you know bridging i wouldn't say courses but say some sort of a bridging finishing lectures courses. or finishing courses some of those 3 months 6 months of modules 
which can, like say I would tell you this two weeks, uh, you know, course which we did, we, we found that they were extremely interested in <clears throat> holding the pipettes and asking all kind of questions. So follow them up with another course at the end of fifth year or something, that would be. But yes, what you suggest is important, there should be more of, you know, crosstalk. Only thing is that if you, if you, you know, like put lots of material in that same time duration, it may be a bit difficult. So kind of, you know, of all the eggs in the basket, just allow, you know, or pick up some of them to get on to this. We are actually thinking of uh, at least collaborating with some institutions sure. to see if, you know, things like pharmacogenomics or, or other things that, that can be done. Yeah. yeah. I remember many years ago, 20 years ago, when we started Osimo, it was so hard to find people. I so know. we did uh, these, uh, I think, university collaborations with the U.S., we did some training and got people and in many right. ways I think we were like one of the early, uh, you know, we were able yes, to Yes, I remember that. Yes, yes. Now I think at least it's good because there's enough uh, people who are yes. available and so on and I think maybe we need to do that, you know, both for genetic counselling and, and yes. also other areas that can be Sure, yeah. So I know I've, I've taken more more time <coughs> than it's I have. It's a pleasure actually, yeah. So, so now it's a quick rapid fire. Oh my God, okay. <laughs> So what do you prefer, books or movies? Uh, both actually. I'm a fan of both. Uh, of late, I'm, I've become a bit, you know, mobile guy. So I look at uh, books, movies, everything on that. Okay. Which is favorite? Any favorite? I'm a Hindi guy, you know. I don't like English books or other. Prem. I mean, I read, you know, Prem Chand and Charachandra and all that. Uh, these days, I'm reading a bit of Robin Sharma and... Uh, I don't remember these, you know, foreign names of authors, but these are some of my favorites. Yeah. What's your more product, most productive time of the day, morning or night? Both. Both. You have chosen <laughs> these two, early morning and uh, yeah. late night. Uh, so, yeah. So, you can consider late night to early morning. Okay, so that's your time. The night, the night to... Yeah, I, I mean, I, th I think I'm a poor sleeper actually. So, if I wake up and if I feel fresh, then I just start working. So it doesn't matter what time it is. Daytime goes more in administrative activities, to be honest, discussing with students and others. But yeah, I mean, evening after 9, 9.30 till say early morning is a good time for me. What's your favorite food? Food, yeah, Rajasthani food. Unfortunately, I can't have most of it now. But yeah, I mean, jalebis and, you know, kachoris, <laughs> these are my most favorite food. Of course, I'm very Maybe fond of Rajasthani. Yes, yeah. I'm very fond of. I mean, Rajasthani food like, I mean, kichra and you know all those kind of things. Gatte ki sabji. It's another matter that I have had my quota finished very early on. <laughs> yeah, just on you know these festival occasions on that time. My mom will not leave me unless she. Unless she, I get that. I I take it. <laughs> So, uh, any new year resolution? See, you know, I am going to be out of active government job in six months time. I, my resolutions have never succeeded. But that doesn't stop me from, you know, making resolutions. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's what they are. Actually, yeah. that was my next question. <laughs> resolution that you keep for to Yes, 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 absolutely. <laughs> no, so, I mean, it's, it's something as I do every year. I take a stock of, you know, what we have done last one year 
so i what i do is that i request all my colleagues to you know make a new year resolution because i am what they are so i ask all of them that what is it that you have achieved in the last year what is it that spending and what new things you have and then of course i also look at it that what is it that i wanted to or so so i think during now i i want to spend a little more little more time on you know societal things or so continue with my research because that is something which you know which is which is what keeps me motivated but uh, i i think that in during these years and next few years to come i would focus on looking at more of these epidemiological programs looking at these you know intervention programs and other things and uh, also try to translate my my basic research stuff into you know uh, you know something which can help the society i just to give example we now are working on developing a type 1 diabetes genetics score we have done we have developed one and we have published that also but i am working more on that so both simultaneous things is what i would like to do yeah. so it's a outstanding uh, career that you have you don't look like you are ready to retire already <laughs> no i am not going to <laughs> yeah. retire for sure yeah. as i said my active active yeah. <laughs> hopefully so, i'll be able to do more things yeah. that i really love of course i must say that i have never had that regret cmds so, why is there a, like a limit to government service i think yeah. i mean i think that somewhere i think so, government also is you know sort of bound by rules. certain rules and i think they also need to put a stop probably somewhere i i think that it's a, it's a good good time to sometimes you know take a break something maybe else. do something else or so and those who are passionate about one thing i'm sure there will be opportunities from them but i i felt that this was a good time point for me also you know not to take a break but then just maybe take a detour look at things and uh, and of course you know when you turn close to 60 then you have your family and other things so i thought it's a good thing to say that okay how many years you have ignored your family so you better now spend time with them so that is great it has been an absolute pleasure <laughs> thank you very much so much and maybe we will have a second round of discussion well i i hope <laughs> so thank you very much it was nice talking to you pleasure yeah.